I'm Carrie Fountain, and this is Just to Say, where we talk to poets about the poems they make and the poems they love. Poetry's about anarchy, it's about mystery, it's about dreams, it's about, you know, the unknown. I made myself anew in poetry. The poem invites the world to come celebrate. This is Sarah Rule. I'm reading a poem by the late Max Ritvo called Refuge. Rain falls on the house. My mother dries dishes in the dark house in the rain. I'm your little dish, I tell her, even though I ought to be a man. You're a big dish. You mean I'm very wet. I haven't seen much and don't see much. The jungle of my short life is one row of white, straight, naked trees. The vines are white and fall apart in my hands as if dissolved under the tongue. Every living thing is screaming dust. To imagine a heaven is to admit there are things in this world you think you could never bring yourself to love, even given an unlimited number of attempts. Learn to love everything. The world becomes heaven. That sounds hard. I have a better idea. Pass the soap. I tell you now, unhappily knitted to bravery, that all you must do is hate yourself round and round, hand in hand, foaming mouth open, rainbow bubbles dashing open. Hate yourself more than any other thing. You have made heaven. That's such a beautiful poem. Who was Max Ritvo? And can you speak a little bit about your relationship with him? So I met Max Ritvo when he was 21 and walked into my playwriting class at Yale and was this amazing, brilliant young man who was a poet. So I got to know Max through that class. And then at the end of the semester, it turned out he'd had a recurrence of a high school cancer that he'd had, a Ewing sarcoma. And the class and I were heartbroken and he knew passionately and with utter clarity that what he wanted to do with the time he had left was right. So he went to Columbia and got his MFA in poetry. And Max and I became dear friends after he was my student, after he graduated from Yale. And we started corresponding because we often weren't in the same cities. And at a point, we decided to make our letters into a little book. And I finished the book after Max died. Max died uh, two years ago. The poem Refuge, it comes from the book called Letters for Max that you finished, a subtitle, A Book of Friendship. And this is a poem that is dedicated to you. So I wonder if you could tell me sort of where this poem falls in your relationship with Max and and what it means to you for this poem to be yours. It means a great deal. I, I love this poem. And Max wrote to me that he wrote it after seeing a play of mine called The Oldest Boy. And in that play, which is really about the relationship between teachers and students, among other things, but um, a Tibetan man and an American woman are washing dishes. And in the play, they sort of fall in love through the washing of dishes. And Max said he was moved by the scene. And so he wrote this poem. Refuge, I think, refers to... um, taking refuge in Buddhism. At least that's what it refers to in the play, but it also probably refers to, you know, other kinds of refuge. There's a line in the play that he quoted in his letter to me where he said, I always thought I hated washing dishes, but it's nice to just dry a dish in the rain. I mean, one thing I love about Max's poetry is there's always this 
sense of dialogue and humor in his poetry, even when he's really at the brink of looking at his own mortality. I was when I was hearing you read it. I also was I that struck me as well. You know, I tell you now, unhappily knitted to bravery, that all you must do is hate yourself round and round, hand in hand, foaming mouth open, rainbow bubbles dashing open. I've, 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 and then the, the next stanza is that stanza, hate yourself more than any other thing you have made heaven. I wonder if, it re- if that refers to the f- whatever image that is of the foaming mouth open and the rainbow bubbles dashing open. The rainbow bubbles seem to me to be dish soap, right? Dish soap bubbles? Yep, I think so. And he's talking to his mother. I mean, I think he's talking to the reader, but there's a figure of a mother in the poem who the boy is speaking to. Um, I mean, I'm so moved by this stanza in the poem to to imagine a heaven is to admit there are things in this world you think you could never bring yourself to love, even given an unlimited number of attempts. Right, that was the that was the stanza that I marked. You know, that's it's just it seems seems to me like such a profound um, stanza and idea. And it and then you know going back to the that last hate yourself more than any other thing you have made heaven. I wonder if you could talk a little bit to to us about what, and I th- think we see this throughout the book, um, and it was never an easy conversation between the two of you philosophically or emotionally um but it it does seem to go throughout the book and i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about max's ideas about you know heaven about heaven in in traditional senses and in in this particular poem well one one thing that max says at a point which i love so much is heavens are all alike the people who make them are all artists I think that his sense of the afterlife was really complicated. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think he didn't believe in an afterlife at all um, and was quite scientific about what might happen to him after he died. But he was also like a 19th century romantic poet at the same time and seemed to believe in things like the sublime and the soul and... Um, consciousness persisting. So it was it was an ongoing conversation between us about whether there are souls, whether there's consciousness, whether or not it can persist. And we went back and forth. Um, and I feel like the cosmology that Max ended up articulating was one, well, maybe I'll just read this little paragraph that you that that you talked about on page 230. Um, he says, Perhaps, Sarah, souls are in the eye of the beholder. What if the soul is no more than the success with which we envision one another? What if you make me and I make you, and we need each other to make each other? Couldn't that be beautiful? Maybe our impermanence makes our love all the fiercer, since we are each other's gods or artists, and we only get to be for as long as we, in particular, love one another. Again, I find myself bringing the afterlife and divinity back into contact with our blood and guts with this particular moment in time. And so I think Max 
love was always at the center of everything for him and this relational concept, you know, we make each other. But also I think the artist making worlds was essential to what, you know, Max's idea of immortality and the body, you know, really insisting upon the body. And if you look at both of Max's extraordinary books of poems, um, the final voicemails and four reincarnations, the body is hugely important. Um, and there's such a fierce insistence on the, the pleasures of the body, the, the awful ugliness of the body, the beauty of the body, even, you know, during, um, going through periods of extraordinary suffering, which Max was going through at the time. I love that you read that paragraph and it just, it makes me want to keep going back to that idea of that last that last stanza, I hate yourself more than any other thing you have made heaven. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about um, one of the most enjoyable and meaningful conversations that you two carry on in this uh, book is the conversation about, I mean, uh, spirituality, but also just about religion, right? There's um, a lot on Buddhism, and you talk about your Catholic upbringing, and you sort of, and, and Judaism, and you kind of both kind of put things in context um, throughout the book in, in, in this way. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the role that hate plays in Buddhism, because as a sort of, you know, um, casual observer of Buddhism, I'm sorry, observer, meaning like someone who, not, not an, I'm not an observant Buddhist, yes, observant Buddhist, <laughs> like <laughs> a casual observer, just really casual with my Buddhism. But, uh, you know, from an outsider perspective, it seems like Buddhism, you know, there's so much talk of love, and there's so much talk of the impermanent and um, attachment. But we don't really, I don't know that I've ever heard the Buddhist idea of, you know, what do, what do Buddhists think about hate? Where What does hate, what role does it play in that? Hate is not good, not good for Buddhists, because hate is also aversion, and it's a kind of attachment. So I think when you're, when you're an observant or practicing Buddhist, you want to be really careful about your aversions and not to be guided by them. So you don't really want to be guided by your hatred. And that's why I guess I I was reading hatred there. There's also this idea of cutting through ego. And, um, you know, it's it's almost like hate. I felt like in that poem was being used as a kind of scythe to cut through ego. I mean, there's plenty of self-loathing in the book too, particularly when Max is in his like really early 20s when I first met him um, he would talk about being divided into a good max and a bad max and so I think there was also always a desire for max to um, harmonize both ideas of the self the good and the bad and a desire to get beyond aversion even though when max had an aversion i always found it quite delightful because he wasn't saintly he and he wrote revenge poems on you know ex lovers current lovers i mean he 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 didn't pull punches when he hated someone's work or when he thought their behavior was repellent so he definitely had a kind of um vivid hatred in him for behavior he hated or poetry he hated 
and he could be quite vivid you know, when he was talking about his hatred. But I keep thinking that the hatred in that poem is about cutting through ego, and I could be wrong. And I'm, again, I'm like desperate to ask him. There's a moment in a letter where he has maybe given one of his first public readings, and he's very excited about it. And then he says, he tells you that he has, he like had gone up to the other poet whom he had read with and said, like, I, and I'm going to paraphrase, I'm probably going to get it wrong, even in like the tone. But he basically said, like, I didn't understand, you know, there's so much static, I think he called it static in your poem that I didn't, I couldn't get through to it. And um, the poet sort of um, says back, well, my poem doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, there is no meaning to be gathered from it. Again, paraphrasing, I'm not sure that I'm getting that correct. But I was, it was just so fascinating to me to think about someone um, so openly saying that to another poet and um, maybe the other poet kind of defensively saying, well, oh, you know, I, well, there's, it didn't mean, I didn't mean to mean anything. And that conversation between the two of you, I think is really, it's, I think it's kind of um, early on. So I think maybe your role in the relationship is sort of more teacherly than it is later on. Um, should I take a moment and find that passage? Sure. Just a moment. I can maybe find it. I mean, I remember the exchange clearly. Here it is. Uh, do you want me to read it to you? Yes, yeah. Okay, he says, The reading went fabulously, full of loved ones. I have connected with some other poets, and they say they want me to come to Brooklyn to do a reading. Maybe you could come to one. Some of the poems were a little deliberately and finicky opaque. Um, oh, and, and and he ends this. I love, <laughs> love this line so much. He's He talks about that he thinks he might relapse within two months um, after the chemo he'd just done. He said, I'm bitter, Sarah. I'm bitter and love the world, and it won't love me back. And then I'm I'm talking about the school of poets who surround him, and I say resist opacity. At the heart of opacity is fear. Maybe we talk about this tw- twice, though, because you're so right that there was a particular poet that he was talking to who said, yeah, I didn't mean anything by that poem. But he, but he talked about it a couple times about some poets who surrounded him having a deliberate opacity and me, you know, kind of sermonizing that he should really resist opacity and that ultimately I think it's, it's a fearful posturing that he's, you know, and, and Max just didn't have a time for posturing and he didn't have time for opacity either in his art making or in his human relationships. Just did not, he was, seemed very aware that he did not have time for that. I don't know if you can answer this question, but it's something that I love to ask all of the poets on that uh, come on our show because I'm so fascinated by it. And I'm very, I'm very curious to know about, well, first of all, I wonder if you know or if Max ever talked about like what his first inclinations toward writing poetry were. I mean, do you know if he was what drew him to poetry writing to begin with? I think he just had done it forever and ever. I think he loved words since he was very small. I think he learned to read very young, maybe even three or four. And I think he had a performative 
part of him too. I mean, he was sort of a great showman. And when he read his poetry, he would sometimes wear this amazing purple kimono or pink kimono, and he would shout his poems out in this booming voice. And he so he wasn't retiring or reticent. So in that sense, I think he could have done a lot of other things that um, are more sort of in the world. But he's always, I think he always has been a poet. I wonder if you could tell us, like in in your own experience, like what drew you to, um, I don't know if it seems to me like maybe you were drawn to poetry before you were drawn to playwriting. I'm not sure. Um, what drew you to writing? What was it? Or, or did you have early experiences as a child that turned you in that direction? I did love poetry and writing poetry before I wrote plays. Um, if I hadn't discovered playwriting, I probably still would be writing a lot more poetry. And it's funny how when you find the right teacher at the right time in your life, it affects you profoundly. And for me, that was a teacher named Paula Vogel, who I met at Brown, who convinced me to switch over from poetry to plays. But since I was little, even before I could read or write, my mother would dictate stories that I would be wanting to write down. I don't know where that impulse comes from, that desire to make thought coherent, to see it outside of yourself, to keep it. I think it's a, you know, can be just a bizarre thing in your DNA. And also, you talked about being an observant Buddhist <laughs> or observing Buddhism. Um, I think that the tendency to observe life while you're in it, that double consciousness that a lot of writers have, I've just always had it. You know, watching, looking, but then being inside, but then watching and wanting to write it all down. I don't know that you say it in this book, or maybe you say it in this book, but it's also in your uh, wonderful collection of short essays called uh, 100 Essays I Don't Have Time to Write. Is that right? Um, you, you, I don't know if you say it jokingly, but you say that a, the best playwright is a failed poet. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> what do you, tell, say a little bit more about that. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Tennessee Williams wrote a lot of poetry, and it, I, I mean, a lot of people think it wasn't very good. Um, I'm trying to think of more examples of, well, Mamet even, I think, secretly writes poetry, but he would never put it out into the universe. I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of playwriting is um, actually way closer to poetry than it is to the short story. It's a lot about that kind of voice and voicing. Um, and metaphor, absolutely, and silence too, you know, the, the contrast between the empty space and the talking and the silence and the talking. I mean, Shakespeare could do both. <laughs> Shakespeare's sort of this amazing, rare singularity, but a lot of playwrights who I know at least have tried their hand a little bit at poetry. And sometime with, sometimes with my playwriting students, I ask them to write a poem a week just to get, get that muscle working so that, that the drive to loft language into the air a little bit starts happening in their plays more often. But I, I think that the impulses are similar. I read this book with my students at the Michener Center. I'm teaching a class called the First Year Seminar, which, you know, the, the Michener Center brings in 12, 12 writers every year, so it's very small, and it's multidisciplinary. So the, in my class, I have all of the first year 
fellows. And so there are, I think, four or five fiction writers, three or four poets. There's one screenwriter and two playwrights. And, you know, so it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful class to teach because you, you sort of are getting all of these perspectives. We also write in all of the disciplines. And so when we read this book, which is kind of perfect, it's a playwright and a poet, and it's, but, it, but the book itself is like kind of neither of those purely. Um, and so my students just adored the book. They really loved the book, and I think they really loved Ma- your relationship and Max. And, you know, so each week I try to give my students um, a kind of, like, open-ended writing assignment seems a little bit too fine a point. Um, but, you know, just a sort of, like, a, a, a little bit of inspiration, and they go off and they write something, and then they bring it in to share. And so, you know... We've been doing that, and I just was struggling so much to come up with an idea for, like, what could they write? And I remember being at a, a reading, the poet Naomi Shihab Nye, and somebody in the audience saying, like, I just don't have time to write, you know, asking advice. when How do I do it? I don't have time or whatever. And she gave this, like, really amazing piece of advice. She said, the next time you sit down to respond to an email, just Put yourself in your poet brain and just take time with the language you're using to respond to whatever, you know, voice you are, you're dealing with in this email. Make it into not a poem necessarily, but just sort of in that space, elevated a bit, the language in that language. So so that kind of struck me as um, interesting. And so the assignment that I had my students do, they just came in yesterday. And they didn't have to write anything. They didn't have to show me what they'd written. But I asked them all to take a moment and to think about someone in their life who has been a teacher to them, who has meant something to them, you know, in that in that deep teacherly way, and to write to that person to like just sort of reach out. And I said, you know, it's this is the kind of a thing where you're not asking them for anything. You know, there's the email where you get the ask for the letter of recommendation. And then there's also the email where you like, this is everything I've been doing for the last six months of my life. Aren't you impressed kind of email? Um, or whatever, where you're just sort of trying to elicit some kind of like, yeah, or I'm deeply discouraged about my career. How can I go on? Yeah, there's all kinds of genres. Yes, right. And so this was like not none of those. This is just a sort of a human gesture. And I told them about the Naomi Shihab Nye thing. And so yesterday they came in and I was just really blown away. You know, again, I didn't tell them to bring anything in written. I just said, I want a little report. You know, I want you to speak a little bit about what happened. And if you, you know, and so, you know, a couple of them, you know, one of them had written to a professor and they like hopped on to like FaceTime, you know, together and talked and had this like really great conversation. One of them had like decided to write to his third grade teacher and she turned out to have died two years ago. Ugh. God, I know. So it was just really like a really amazing assignment. I just wanted to tell you about it because it was. I'm having my students do it Monday. I'm stealing that. It's so it makes me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really great assignment. It's also a really great assignment because it's totally on the honor system, right? Like, I don't want to read your email. I don't want to know anything. I just want you to come in and tell me about the sort of feeling of it and what, you know, possibility did you just plant in that moment? Like the difference between writing a letter and writing someone to ask some 
ask them for something, which is most often what we're doing in an email, right? <laughs> but it was really, it was really quite something. And they really loved, they really loved your book and they really loved Max. Thank you. I, I had a teacher once, Maria Irene Fornes, who used to say, what, what kind of person always wants something from another person? Only criminals and Americans. <laughs> She's an amazing. She her work was so important to me when I was in college. I was a theater major in college and reading those plays and finding them and just thinking like, "Oh, you know, I went to a small I went to a small state school and their theater program was like Christmas Carol every year and, you know, um Tartuffe." And then when you know reading those plays, Abingdon Square, the beginning scene where the the guy's on the ladder and he he takes a, a vase of flowers and he takes the flowers out and he drinks all the water in the vase. I was like, okay, I'm sold. Sign me up. <laughs> it's amazing. Such an amazing playwright. Okay. So Rebecca wants me to ask you <laughs> my, my, my boss. No, I, and I think it's great because uh, it gives us one more moment, but I was wondering if you, there's anything you feel like you didn't get to say about Max that you would want to, you know, say. Oh, well, thank you for um, being such a beautiful reader and champion of the book and, and for just putting more, putting light, shining a light on poetry in the way that you do. And I struggled with the subtitle of the book, A Book of Friendship, you know, whether the book needed a subtitle or not. And I ultimately decided it was helpful, partly because of what you said about our culture not celebrating friendship enough. And I think it's a hard relationship to know how to to put into narrative terms and our culture is so obsessed with romantic love and so obsessed with Oedipal dramas and family dramas and the nuclear family and friendship even though I think we would be so miserable as humans without friendship we we don't know how to properly celebrate it certainly not within not within literature um and I think what you said about the seed developing from just a tiny innocuous email, you don't, you, we never know where these things will, will lead us. Um, we never know which relationships will have impact on us. And when Max was alive and we tried to structure the book together, we organized it by subject. And Max was, in fact, really against um, structuring it chronologically. And he wanted to to make it a little bit more about, you know, here's here's our treatise on the soul. Here's our section about about poetry, and it just it felt a little flat. And then we we actually literally ran out of time, and Max kind of said, "Do what you want." Um, and so I organized it chronologically, which had always been my impulse. Um, but I think for Max, the idea of chronology was upsetting because he knew he wouldn't be there at the end. Um, he knew the ending of the story, and I think um, he also didn't. He also didn't really like illness narratives, and he wanted to be known as primarily a poet and not a a young man who was sick. And so I say that to offer some context into how the book was made and to honor Max's impulses around the book. And I think that as a playwright, some of my instincts about storytelling are 
you know, sort of bare knuckled, like, well, there's a beginning, middle and an end. And to me, all of that stuff about how a relationship is formed is probably just as interesting as all the sermonizing about abstract principles. So I, I guess I'm hoping Max, you know, if he's listening some somewhere out in ether, I hope he, I hope he likes the outcome. I guess I, the one thing I would say about Max reading younger readers is that there was that study done recently about the decline of empathy among college-age students because of digital media. We don't know why, actually. There's just there's a, there's a measurable decline in empathy, and I would say that Max had he just had a higher quotient of empathy than than most people I've ever met, and that part of it was this great imaginative empathy he had, and also this incredible gift he had for listening, which he talks about in the book, um, or in the letters. He His first letter to me was his application where he said, um, all I want to do is listen. Or he's, you, you know, he said, um, actually he said, all I want to do is write. But then he talked in this beautiful way about his desire to listen. And um, I can't find the passage. But I think listening to each other you know, Max being a voice that actually answered back, being this beautiful imaginative voice who could loft eloquence into the world in the way that he did, but also that he was such a deep, good listener and friend. I think that's what made Max so wise, was that he he was both observing and creating, but also listening deeply to the people around him. So I guess it's my hope that if you know, people his age are reading the book and taking him in and um, and knowing him the way and knowing his poems and in the way that they can, that um, some of that deep listening is transmitted to them. It was an incredible gift that he had. You can find the poem "Refuge" for Sarah in the collection Letters from Max, A Book of Friendship by Sarah Rule and Max Ritvo, available from Milkweed Editions. This Is Just to Say is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. I'm Carrie Fountain. Thanks for listening.